0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Luke Ellis, CEO of The Man Group, managing well over $100 billion. They are the world's largest publicly traded hedge fund. And Luke is a specialist in a number of things, risk management, systematic trading, derivatives, Big data. He is about as knowledgeable of the world of uh, math and technology driven trading as anybody in the world. And what a tour de force this conversation was. I wish I had him for another three hours. I just had so many questions to get to. If you were at all interested in algorithmic trading, hedge funds, big data, understanding what it's like to run a large firm and to risk hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, then, what can I say? You're going to find this conversation absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with Luke Ellis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Luke Ellis. He is the CEO of Man Group, which manages about $104 billion. They are the world's largest listed hedge fund. The firm uh, is known as a pioneer in the application of systematic trading since all the way back in 1987. Luke Ellis, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Barry, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's go back to the early days of your career. You began at Japanese Bank Nomura Holdings in the 80s. Tell us about that experience. The 1980s and Japan was a pretty wild financial world wasn't it
1: yes well look i have to admit that um so i i knew from an early age that i wanted to work in finance i I sort of i grew up playing cards when i was very young sort of three or four and then then my grandfather taught me to bet on the horses when i was about six and but to do it seriously you know read form guides so on and so forth and one day we're watching the racing and I there was, it was a three-horse race and all of them had odds which were uh, reasonably tight. And I looked at my grandfather and said, hang on, this isn't fair. None of those are good enough. The bookie's going to win. And he looked at me and said, the bookies win on every race. And I said, well, I think I want to be a bookie one day. And he said, well, in our family, we call that going to work in the city. So I knew I wanted to work in the city. And it's hard for young people listening to think about it properly but when i graduated there wasn't the internet and so when you were trying to work out where to go and get a job there was a careers office which had various books about jobs and it only had three jobs listed in the city that weren't accounting and i knew i didn't want to do accounting so i applied to all three and the first one that i got through to the final interview um i Nicely, they offered me the job. One of the interview questions was, why do you want to go and live in Japan? But I just thought it was one of those trick interview questions that was all the rage in the 80s, like, you know, <laughs> sell me this broken pen or stop me jumping out of the window or something. So I just made up a story of why I wanted to go and live in Japan. Anyway, they offered me the job, and then I discovered it was a Japanese firm, and I'd signed up to four-month training program in Japan. It, research was harder in the pre-Internet days. That's what I'm going to defend myself of. But it was a brilliant time. You know, that was the height of the Japanese company's power in financial markets. So Nomura, and when I was there in those days, they, they with one quarter's earnings, they could have bought Merrill Lynch, which at the time was the biggest U.S. broker, Goldman Sachs, you name it, just with one quarter's earnings. So it was a pretty good time to get started in the industry. To
0: to say the very least, you know, I find that Americans don't fully understand the extent of the Japanese bubble. As bad as the dot coms were in the United States, I think the measure of the 1989 peak in Japan was something like five times the U.S. or seven times the U.S. valuation. Is that ballpark?
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, amazingly it's still double where it's ever got to since. Amazing. And the so, other way so the, the stat which was always the, the, the stat which was in the end the best was that the Imperial Palace with its garden, which is a sort of bit in the middle of Tokyo. It's right in the centre of Tokyo. It's you know, it, it's a two or three acre type of plot. And at the time the value of that land was more than the value of the land in California. And I mean all the land in California. That's a point where you know that this is a bubble that when it bursts is going to have a really dire consequences.
0: So you worked with Lane Tomlinson, who was founder of Fundafund's Finance Risk Management. You ended up at FMR. FMR. What was that like
1: working there? FMR is uh, Fidelity, I think. It yes. was FRM. So the, FRM. So I was lucky enough to start my career right at the beginning of the derivative business. And so this was the very early days of swaps. And in fact, in Japan, the word swaps wasn't legal for a very Japanese reason. So they had a group called the New Product Department. And basically, Blaine used to run that and he got the pick of, all of the new graduates that started that had a uh, either a some sort of mathematical numerical background, and luckily I got picked, and so sort of dived into the swap business in 1985, when you know nobody could teach you how to do it. You had to teach yourself because the rules hadn't been written. So we had the first IBM, I not remember whether it was called an AT or an XT, but the first personal computer on the floor in the mirror. And people used to come around to look at it. Yeah, you know, this is sort of I did my first trade by telex. Sort of thing. Most people won't even remember what it is. So it was a very different world. But you basically had to have a feel for numbers in order to be able to do trades. And for me, that was great because you know I never was the best academic, but I've always had a a natural affinity with patterns. And you know that was why I like playing cards originally. It got me through degrees in maths and economics, understanding patents. But it really, really worked when you were having to you know, present value a set of cash flows in your head because that was much quicker than the computer and you could get the deal done before the other person's computer had worked out exactly what the answer was.
0: So, so it was, a, so it was, you was went,
1: a very, very different world than you'd imagine now.
0: I, I certainly could. You end up at J.P. Morgan where eventually – you become global head of equity derivatives trading. What was
1: that experience like? Well, that was my first build a business experience. And so um, I went there to do swaps. And fairly quickly, maybe as a couple of years I've been there, they had a problem in their sort of nascent equity derivative business. And this was back in the Glass-Steagall days, so... You know, sort of J.P. Morgan wasn't particularly supposed to be doing anything in equities, but, you know, we were already a very important swaps house, maybe the leading swaps house, and they wanted to do other derivatives. They would started an equity derivative business, and it sort of hadn't really worked. And in a very J.P. Morgan way, I got a phone call while I was on holiday saying, when you get back from holiday, your new job is this. And then a couple of hours later, somebody called me back and said, sorry, we were supposed to ask if you wanted that. But, you know, it was like, yeah, of course, I'll take the job. Yeah, I didn't think I got a choice. And so when I got to that business, it was, I mean, it, it was sort of 20 people and it was losing a bit of money. And it had revenues of sort of, I think, revenues of 10 million or something. And when I left it, what was seven, eight years later, we were up to making a billion dollars of profits. So it was a it was a huge growth of a business and it was a mixture of doing whatever we could do from a client derivative point of view at the same time as effectively running a big hedge fund embedded in the bank. And it was a sort of hugely successful business that we built up there. And it was a lot of it was driven by the fact that JP Morgan was trying to grow a cash equities business and growing a cash equities business from nothing is very expensive. And the chief executive at the time had said that we would be able to build a cash equities business without losing any money. And so basically, sort of the job of my team was to make enough money to offset whatever money needed to be invested in the next tier of the equities, cash equities business. Honestly I had a real blast. I had a fantastic boss who kept all of the sort of complicated politics of being in a you know in a money center bank away from my shoulders. I didn't have to worry about any of that. I could just get on with running money and we had a very good time. We built a lot of interesting strategies, made some very good returns and grew it and for me, it was a really exciting growing a business. I got a kick of that. I got a kick of leading the, the troops, learned a number of lessons along the way.
0: Huh? Quite fascinating. One of the interesting things about the J.P. Morgan derivative book is it actually held up pretty well in the 08-09 crisis because before that, a good five or seven years earlier, there was a little flare-up that was managed. I don't know if you were there during that, but whatever policies were put into place, whatever risk management policies came in, really helped J.P. Morgan navigate the great financial crisis with very, very little damage. Did that overlap with your time when you were there?
1: Well, I mean, clearly I'd left well before the financial crisis, but you know, I think that there'd been a number of You know, as I mean, as you grow a derivative business and you're learning things, there'd been a number of, shall we call them, small, minor hiccups, some of which were, at the time, seemed extremely important. But when you look back, they were quite small numbers compared to financial crisis. But, you know, I was part of the sort of the old pre-Chase merger, J.P. Morgan, where risk management was really the number one thing they taught you. And... You know, Jamie Dimon obviously has a fantastic eye for risk management. And so those two things together clearly has helped them uh, operate through the next 20 years and, you know, go from being, you know, at the heart when, you know, back when I was there, people looked at it as as a very upper crust type of business. But, uh, you know, it wasn't really thought of as a powerhouse away from derivatives, And obviously today, it's, you know, well, it's the most successful investment bank.
0: Earlier, we were discussing your time running the Equity Derivatives Desk at J.P. Morgan. How did you get to the man group? What what brought you over there?
1: Well, so after J.P. Morgan, I had 10 years building a fund of funds business with my original boss, Blaine Tomlinson. So he and I were partners in building up a fund of hedge funds business called FRM, which was a really, again, that was my sort of second experience of building something this time, a private business. It was really interesting and entertaining. And I thought it got as big as it could get on its own. I tried to convince Blaine that we should sell the business. We had a couple of goes of getting extremely close to selling the business, but he really couldn't bring himself to let go And so I basically said, "Okay, well, if you're not going to sell the business, then you have to buy me out. And I actually retired at the end of 2007. So I had the good fortune to be retired during the financial crisis and to be not emotionally involved in what was going on, which has definitely given me longevity. And various friends running various hedge fund businesses asked for help during the course of the crisis. And, you know, so I was, you could call it consulting, but it was essentially helping friends with their businesses to think about what, how they survived, what they could do, what they couldn't do. You know, it was an amazingly fast-moving period. And one of those was a business called GLG uh, that at the time was run by a guy called Manny Roman, who's sort of an old equity derivative friend of mine. And when things calmed down in middle of 2009, I carried on doing sort of one day a week helping Manny at GLG, which was nice and interesting, but I, I didn't have any urge to go back full time. So I was sort of doing one day a week. And then, what's 10 years ago now, um, so spring of 2010, uh, Man Group made a bid for GLG and succeeded in buying GLG. And in looking at... Uh, you know, I understood the GLG business very well. I also understood the man business reasonably well, given it was sort of made up of a CTA and a fund of hedge funds. And I could see that the job of sorting out this merger was going to be extremely hard work, but rather intellectually interesting. And so... Uh, in effect, I put my hand up and said, hey, you know, Manny, you've talked to me about coming full-time to work at GLG. Well, now it's going to be the com- combination of Man and GLG. That looks really quite fun. And so I signed up to join Man as part of the team that was there to turn around the business as you put those two things together. That, so, sort of that's quite fascinating. I knowing it was... I came in knowing it was a turnaround and Mm -hmm. thinking that, that, you know, I'd built two businesses. I'd enjoyed building two businesses, but I wasn't that excited about starting to build another new one. But the chance to turn around some big, quite complicated things seemed rather exciting. And sure enough, it was.
0: So, So let's stay with that. Turning around a giant hedge fund that had run into, I don't even want to say trouble, but had become very complex, very complicated, and perhaps some of that was not showing up in um, the performance numbers, or at least it wasn't consistent. If I recall that era, Man Group was a little inconsistent across different strategies, across different managers. Tell us what you saw when you arrived, and how did you turn a giant, multidiscipline, multi-manager fund around?
1: So, um, I mean, there was a lot going on. The the big thing was that during the pre-crisis period, man had specialized in selling the structured products, sort of 10-year structured products, which actually the clients did very well out of over time. But they basically took a CTA, a fund of hedge funds, and a capital guarantee, rolled it all up together. but. Importantly, Man Group earned enormous fees out of those by any comparison. So Man had the highest fee margins by a multiple of five or six in the industry. But they also had a cost base that was a multiple of anybody else's cost base. And what was clear was in a post-crisis world, these structured products with those sorts of fees were unsellable. And so you could see in the future that we had to build a new stream of revenues for the business and a new form of distributing the product. And we also really had to sort out the cost base. So I think roughly the numbers went at the point of the merger, there were about two thousand four hundred people in man group and at the low when we'd finished all of the cost initiatives that we needed to do, there were about 750. So it was very significant cost removal exercise. Combined with that, we had to make sure that the investment processes were really focused on alpha generation. And that required some, a mixture of change of people and change of emphasis of what they focused on. And then thirdly, we had to build an entirely new distribution process. In the pre-crisis world, these structured products were basically man paid other people to sell them for them. And they were sold to retail around the world with an average ticket size of $10,000. You know, what we did was to build a basically from scratch institutional sales process. So today we're an 80% institutional business, and even the other 20% is, you know, what we think of as retail business is J.P. Morgan private banking, is Morgan Stanley's wirehouse. You know, we don't do any direct to individual type of selling at all these days. Hmm,
0: quite interesting. So most hedge funds we know about are not
1: publicly traded entities.
0: Why did Man Group decide to go public?
1: Um, well, clearly pre my time. And I would say that the, at the time, Man Group was more of a holding company. And the bit that's the hedge fund was one of a number of pieces within the puzzle. And so I mean, Man has a rather wonderful story in history. The business has been the firm has been around almost 240 years, it used to have a monopoly in supplying run to the Royal Navy doesn't sound like much of a business, but everybody in the Royal Navy used to get what's not quite half a pint of rum every day. And you have a monopoly providing that. It was a very good business for a long time. So they were sort of quite late to the asset management thing. It wasn't their nature. They were a commodity dealer, but more a principal. And through essentially the acquisition of AHL, which is the CTA within the firm or the, the platform that came from the CTA. The you know they started in the asset management business. And so, you know, when they went public, they were thinking of themselves as a financial conglomerate. As a hedge fund business, you know, there are things we gain from being public and there are things we lose from being public. You know, the, the truth of it is if you're a private hedge fund business, I wouldn't recommend going public. As a public hedge fund business, I wouldn't recommend going private. It's, you know, there are swings and roundabouts, gains and losses. It's absolutely fine. But it, you know, sort of there's pluses and minuses in the columns.
0: Luke, let's talk a little bit about the state of the industry today. Things are... Pretty challenging for a lot of hedge funds, really, since the great financial crisis, the past decade plus. Why is it that so many hedge funds have been struggling? And the obvious follow-up question,
1: and how come you guys have not? I think that one of the things that we're seeing in many industries with the rise of technology, and I think it's primarily driven by technology, but it's an interesting question because you see it in many different industries, is the stronger getting stronger and the weaker struggling to survive. And the hedge fund business is a very Darwinian industry. And what you're seeing is that the larger hedge fund platforms have actually done very well over the last five and 10 years. And have grown and have got, you know, with size, have actually been able to invest more and thereby create bigger barriers to entry, which creates competitive advantage, which makes it even harder for the small hedge fund. And so, you know, 20 whatever years ago when I started in the hedge fund business, you know, it was all about looking for the next 100, 200 million dollar hedge fund. The reality is that's not really an economically viable business anymore, and so you know the, what's been happening is a concentration of the alpha with the people who can afford to invest in the technology who can afford to invest in the best people, and that is squeezing out the smaller players. So you hear a lot of stories of people struggling in the hedge fund industry because by number of hedge funds. That's right. But when you look at it in terms of the overall industry, actually, it's in rather good health. It's just the good health is getting concentrated in first the top 500, then the top 100, now maybe the top 20 players.
0: Winner take all. We see that across a lot of industries. So
1: You mentioned technology. and I think it's it's particularly something around this technology question, because one of the big differences between human processes and technology processes, when you develop a human process, uh, you know, the next day you have to repeat roughly the same process again in order to check that everything's (laughs) all right. And so the amount of new research you do is relatively constrained. When you have a technology process, once you've got the technology running, you don't really need to spend very much time at all making sure it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so you can put 90% of your time into new research. And that means that you get a compounding effect that over time really is is a significant benefit to the technology-empowered business over the one that... It is sort of dragging its feet. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating.
0: So, during uh, the first quarter, when the market dropped pretty substantially, you saw a drop of only eleven percent. Uh, a lot of hedge funds did much, much worse than that. What did you guys see to get this right? Or, asked more systematically, what was the technological edge? that helped you avoid the full thirty plus percent downdraft so many other funds suffered.
1: So so I think one of the things just to highlight is so sort of sixty percent of what we do is hedge funds and forty percent is long only. And so we run a number of long only strategies as well within the platform. And you know when you look at the returns in the first quarter the long only strategies were down I mean, we had some decent alpha performance but they were down proportionally with the market actually our hedge fund strategies on average made money small but on average made small money in the first quarter and you know what was that about well the if i go back to that thing i mentioned about jp morgan in in the beginning you know I think that risk management is an incredibly important skill. And if you looked at our positioning on the fifteenth of February just before the market turned, yeah you know, we had good positioning for the way the market was then and therefore horrific positioning for the way the market was two weeks later. Um, but We've spent a lot of our time and energy on investing in our risk management processes and particularly a a sort of strong belief that the simple answer to risk management is if you don't like a position, don't try and find some complicated hedging strategy, get rid of it. And so in order to do that, you have to spend a lot of time and effort on your execution process. But basically, what we were able to do is the systems recognized very quickly that they had the wrong positioning as the market started to sell off. And we got out of that positioning very quickly by the end of February so that we could make money as the market continued its sell off down into the end of March. And, you know, it comes from very good risk management systems and sort of risk management built into everything we do, but really important, the execution platform, because the markets got pretty crazy, as we all remember during that period. And doing your execution in a smart way was really important because if you were a bit sloppy about it, you could get terrible slippage. So you could be leaving loads of money on the table yeah, you know, we, because of the investment we made in that execution, we able to get out of our positions without leaving lots of bid offer on the table.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. What do you make of this recovery? Here we are in the second week of June, NASDAQ is up to all-time highs, S&P not quite back to all-time highs, but just about positive for the year. Have we come too far too fast, or do you just let the technology guide you on those decisions and not sort of spitball market
1: commentary? Well, I'm always happy to spitball market commentary, but the but the machines will do what the machines do. They don't do what I tell them to do, that's for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But quite interestingly, they they don't really believe in this rally either which says something about history. Look, it's very easy to see how the first half of the rally happened, given how quickly we sold off, perfectly normal in market behavior for a rebound, you know, normally for for the the shorts to reset, if you like. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then we saw this amazing wave of retail buying that came in and sort of from the middle of April onwards, That has really driven the rally up here. And I think it's easy to look at valuations where they are now and think that the valuations are going down from here. Now, whether that happens in the next month will depend on more buyers or sellers. I mean, you know, this is Mm -hmm. the market is being driven by technicals. But I think somewhere over the summer, it's almost inevitable that the sort of buying frenzy from retail is running out of steam. The issuing from companies is not running out of steam. And there's a point where that's going to create more sellers than buyers. And we'll start another leg down. How far that goes will be an interesting question, I think. Huh, so yeah, but so we're at essentially- valuation which basically says that the current valuation says 2021 earnings have to be at least as high as 2019 earnings. And you're happy to put on a multiple that's higher than we had in 2019. Myself, you know, you can debate multiples, but, you know, the, the, even if the economy, I think the the most most optimistic view of the economy would be that it returns to something like 2019 Grow uh, sort of absolute GDP in 2021. I I think it's likely to be lower. You know, in that process, I think that you're likely to see higher costs for companies and higher cost of capital because they're likely to run more conservative balance sheets. You know, they're going to have to pay the sort of gig type of workers more. And so I, I think the you know, the margins that companies had in 2019 are not going to be seen in 2021. But at the moment, you know, this market is being driven purely by technicals. On every day, there are more buyers and sellers. You go up.
0: Before we get into some more details about different strategies and what's working and what's not, tell us a little bit about your role as CEO. Are you overseeing investments? Are you overseeing investor relations? running the day-to-day business. Man Group is a pretty substantial, complicated business to run. What demands your attention the most?
1: The interesting thing is it's sort of not what people expect. So I probably, maybe I spend 10% of my time on corporate stuff. We are, as you say, a public company that requires a certain amount of things. But I spend very little time with our shareholders. I provide them with the information and then leave them to make their own decision. I spend about ten percent of my time on clients, um, sort of ten percent of my time on the, the sort of other aspects of business management. And you know what I spend most of my time on is really the people. You know I have strong views about markets. I talk markets all the time with the different people at work, but you know I don't influence anybody's investment process. But I spend a lot of time on getting people to work together well, making sure that they're happy in their job, making sure the people that are having a tough time have an arm around the shoulder, making sure the people that are doing really well don't get cocky and you, know, you poke them hard so that they don't get um, arrogant about it, because we all know whatever your investment style is at various points, the market will love your investment style, and you'll look really clever and there are times when the market will hate your investment style, and you know what we want is people and whether it's discretionary or quant, to stick to a process and so my job is to keep them motivated, keep them working together make sure, you know, provide leadership to the people because, you know, in the end, these businesses are all about the people you have within them.
0: Hmm, Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what the various worldwide governments' responses have been to the pandemic. Central banks have slashed rates. They've injected a ton of liquidity. Lots of governments have done large fiscal stimulus how much of this rally is being driven by all this government largesse and how much of it is a bounce back from the fastest down 30 percent I think we've ever seen in, in market
1: history? Yeah, I think we've hit the fastest, quickest, largest everything in the last or, or actually in everything compared to the last time. That this all happened was in the 30s which is a slightly scary thought to behold i, I think what you've got going on is you know you, you have a serious tsunami of pain in the real economy out there um you know even with the slightly strange unemployment numbers that we had on friday you know w- we've had a 10 percent increase in unemployment in the space of two months And, you know, in many countries, it's a lot worse than that. Um, You know, when you talk to anybody running a small business in the sort of, you know, that's not in the financial markets, in the real economy, they're having a miserable time. Um, And on the other side, you've got this incredible wave of money that's come from governments and central banks getting harder and harder to tell governments and central banks apart, to be honest. You know that has to something I alluded to earlier, you know, that has definitely benefited a lot of the larger companies. Uh, that's where most of the money has gone to. And so there is something understandable that says you know large cap stocks are doing relatively well in a world where the overall economy is still doing poorly because there will be market share gains for big companies out of all of this, I believe. But one of the troubles of trying to put valuations on the market or valuations on individual stocks is these enormous waves of money in the different directions. People are trying to guess the input for their share model that you know the stock valuation model that they had a year ago what are the inputs i should put in for next year i have to say my own sense is you need a different model looking forward because i do think out of all of this there are going to be some material changes over time sort of timescales in the us are hard to guess given the political situation but yeah there are going to be changes for the corporate landscape in the same way that there were coming out of two thousand and eight nine to the financial institution landscape. Two thousand and eight nine, you know, what happened, you could say what we realized, I don't know, but it's certainly what happened was that, you know, there's a conclusion banks were too levered and that uh, they didn't take enough responsibility for their own actions and they were not resilient enough in their business. And so we came out of 2008-9 with a series of regulations which put leverage limits on banks, imposed stress tests on them so the businesses were more resilient, and put personal liability into the management of of the banks. I think personally that we're likely to see similar types of things come out of this but applied to the corporate world because what happened after 2008-9 was bank leverage went down and corporate leverage went up a lot and so we came into the crisis with all of these companies with absolutely no resilience not again not all of the companies you could see why an amazon or an apple has done incredibly well through all of this because you know they have incredibly robust balance sheets but if you look at a whole bunch of the names which um, have struggled, you see that they had huge leverage and no ability to withstand two, three months of, you know, I mean, look, it's an extreme shock, but still to withstand two or three months of no income is not, you know, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to expect a company to run with that amount of resilience. And I think you're likely to see regulation coming out of the other end of this, which starts to drive that behavior into companies.
0: We, we've certainly seen that in the just-in-time delivery for essential medical and food supplies. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some regulations uh, change with that. When, when the supermarkets don't have toilet paper for a month, That doesn't say uh, your society is especially stable, does it?
1: There you go. And, you know, you you, you mean, you know, toilet paper was, I mean, it's a perfect poster chart for this. And one of the things is, you know, when you think you might run out of toilet paper, you're willing to pay any price for it. But that's not good for an economy. So I think that just-in-time inventories is another form of running businesses with extremely low resiliency. And so I think that either through company management or through regulation, there is going to be a push for companies to run with more inventory, to run with shorter supply lines. And if you've got the longer supply line, then it's got to have more, in, even more inventory built into it. Yeah, all of these things are you know, likely to come out of the other side of this crisis. And, you know, when we, when we move from companies having, you know, sort of a year of spare part inventory to just-in-time manufacturing, the route of pro, uh, direction was a good one. But I think, you know, in the way that happens, if there's no regulation, it went too far. You know, I'm a huge believer in capitalism. It's the best system there is. But it shouldn't be untrammeled. It should have some constraints on it. And it, you know, if you actually go back and read Adam Smith, you know, who is everybody's poster child for the father of capitalism, actually, when he talks about the invisible hand in the rest of the chapter, he talks about the fact that the invisible hand needs some constraints to stop it going too far.
0: Hmm, absolutely. So let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about a different sort of practice within the man group. You have a private practice focusing on real estate, single-family homes, financing. Tell us a little bit about that practice and what you are looking at going forward. Some people have posited that following the pandemic, there's going to be a little bit of an egress out of the city and into the surrounding bedroom communities where you have a little more space and a little more room to deal with either a pandemic or a uh, shelter-in-place situation.
1: I think that's right. I I would love to say that, you know, we had predicted that path in getting into this business. But, you know, I, I think what we saw was in the States, two big things happening. One has been a gradual drift of people from, I guess you'd call it something like the Northeast down in the direction of the southeast to south in terms of moving from parts of the country where the cost of living is incredibly high to parts of the country where the cost of living is more manageable. And that suits both the individuals and the companies. Um, So, you know, the cost of having a three-bedroom house in commuting distance to a bank in Manhattan is crucifyingly expensive. The cost of having a three bedroom house in commuting distance to Bank of America in Charlotte is, you know, it's sort of a couple of hundred thousand dollars and therefore well within the sort of capability of people. But the second thing we've seen is um, that after the financial crisis, there is a whole generation of people who don't see houses as a store of value. In the UK, still, there is a sense that the house is the one surefire store of value. Obviously, a lot of people in the US had real difficulties in financial crisis with housing finance. And so there is a whole generation that is very nervous of owning their own home, doesn't see it as a store of value and therefore is really quite happy with rental as opposed to mortgage finance. And so one can get you know, people who can very easily afford the house but choose to rent it rather than buy it. We use some technology to basically identify best neighborhoods, best type of houses for the type of of renters we're looking for, you know, and part of the thing is it's, as opposed to the multi-family, you know, lots of apartments packed in together, this is much more about, you know, the three, four bedroom family house around the sort of ring road in one of the growing cities where, you know, they, they care a lot about, if it's a three, four bedroom house, you're worried about kids because otherwise why have you got three or four bedrooms? And so you worry about the quality of the local school, and so access to the right schools is really important. And then once somebody's renting and their kids are at a good school, you know, they're a pretty stable tenant because the last thing you want to do is take your kids out of a good school. So, you know, we think that's a very interesting thing where you're delivering value to the tenants and you can deliver a very decent return to uh, the capital providers, to our investors. And actually, really interestingly, through the crisis, you know, so we've been collecting something like 95% plus of the rent that we collected by number of tenants as this time last year, and actually more dollars of rent than we collected this time of last year. So as an asset class, it's really held up even before, I so mean it's held up in cash flow, even before you start to see the possibility of, of increase in prices as people start to move out of the big cities.
0: Huh. Quite interesting. Any other new strategies that are being revealed uh, by the pandemic and lockdown or, or asked differently, what has changed going forward as a allocator of capital? What areas are you thinking about as, hey, this is very different post-2020 than it was previously?
1: I think the challenge for allocators is that everybody's got used to the idea that the sort of starting point is a 60-40 type of portfolio. And that was based around the idea that government bonds were a store of value and had a decent yield and were uncorrelated. And I think we are seeing something through the course of this process of basically central banks funding government deficits and thereby uh, repressing natural movements in yields. And so we've, we've ended up at this place where the amount of upside in owning treasuries is extremely limited, or government bonds anywhere, over time. And you obviously have a downside if the central bank ever loses control. And so I think government bonds globally have gone from being a long-term investment as one of the core pillars of your natural savings process to basically being a trading instrument So there are moments you want to be long treasuries, there are moments you want to be short treasuries, but just owning them as a store of value over time with a nice yield, you know, that just doesn't apply anymore. And thinking that they're going to provide you with significant ballast in a time of difficulty, also really not clear that that happens when you start getting down to these very low levels of yields, which are only there because of central bank buying, because of QE. So I think, you know, that there's a challenge in building successful portfolios for clients over time that really you have equities and the equity-like things like credit, like private equities, they're all basically growth instruments driven by the same thing on the one hand, and you have cash as the alternative, and that's a, you know, that's a riskier portfolio than the one that clients have had for the last 20 years. And so we're doing a lot of work helping clients think about how you manage, manage their overall pension fund, or whatever it might be, in that type of environment.
0: Quite intriguing. I know I only have you for a couple of minutes more, so let's jump to our speed round. These are our favorite questions we ask all of our guests. And let's start out with what are you streaming these days? What are you watching on Netflix or whatever video preferences you have?
1: I have to say I thought about that one because I've heard it in your other questions, and I realize we have had a rather unexciting time with streaming. It's partly by the time you get to the evening, we're not. I'm not after anything very intellectual, but you know we've we've watched some New Amsterdam. On one thing we watched, there's a. A British police drama called In the Line of Duty, which we'd somehow missed over the last 10 years. So we went back and started that one from the beginning. But fundamentally, television has been really dull. For me, without sport, it's barely worth turning the TV on for.
0: Huh, quite interesting. Tell us about some of your mentors who helped guide your career when you were a young buck.
1: Um, well, I have to say that the, I tried over my life to get, you know, sort of whoever I deal with to try and learn something from them. I'm, I'm quite a sponge for ideas and processes from people in a, in a traditional sense. So the, you know, so I mentioned earlier, I, you know, the best manager I've ever had was my boss at J.P. Morgan, who was called Ramon Oliveira who really taught me how to build a team, how to motivate people. And I've always been super grateful to him for everything I learned from that.
0: Let's talk about books. What are some of your all-time favorite books and what are you reading right now?
1: So I have to say, I've been reading a lot in the, in the lockdown. One of the things I realized was getting up in the morning and going straight to my desk was slightly sad. So that morning commute type of period, I've taken that first hour of the morning and I sit and read, which means you get through quite a lot. I try to read a mixture of things which are good for work, things which are sort of mind expanding in some form, and things which are just, just a bit of fun. My favorite book is a book called John McNabb, which is a John Buchan book written in the 30s, I think. And it's actually applied incredibly today. And it's basically about three successful people who are suffering from ennui that they're somewhat bored with their successful life and they've lost the spark. And it's about how they refine that spark, which I go back to that really quite often. But in the lockdown, I, I don't know if you've come across a guy called Matthew Saeed who writes some very interesting books He's more of a thinker than a Malcolm Gladwell, but he's in the same type of area. He has one called Black Box Thinking, which is one of my favorite ones, because it's, it's really into how the, the, the aviation, I mean, it, it's in thinking of how do you create a no-blame culture within a business, but it's really about the difference between the aviation industry, where every time there's a problem, it's a learning experience as opposed to the medical industry where nobody wants to admit they ever got anything wrong. And he had a new one out just recently called Rebel Ideas which is about cognitive diversity and have some very interesting ideas about practical diversity in a business um, which is pretty appropriate in the, in the circumstances of the last couple of weeks. I, I love wine, I spend a lot of time thinking about wine I like reading about wine. I like drinking it more and going around and fiddling in my wine cellar. But the, somebody got me a book called Cork Dork, which is about New York sommeliers, which I found a really good read. Hmm.
0: Well, I read Black Box Thinking some time ago, and what I found so surprising and fascinating was that the famed black box is actually orange— because as part of their process of always reviewing each problem, if a plane crashes in water or in deep forest, black is hard to see and orange is easy to see. So even the famed black box itself is actually a different color. That's how serious they are about learning from the process.
1: Exactly. And don't don't have sacred cows. Learn from a process and try and get better. I definitely try to follow a lot of those ideas in my day-to-day process.
0: Quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate, a recent university graduate, who was interested in either the world of investing or systematic trading or anything quantitative having to do with finance?
1: Uh, So the first one would be simple, which is if you haven't done it already, go and spend time learning to code in Python. Python is one of these languages that, you know, it's, it's a new generation language where it's one of these places, ways of language where you can get real compounding of ideas because you don't have to code everything from first principles. You could take chunks of other people's work. I think that's really important in terms of the, you know, one of the interesting things that Man is, you know, while while obviously English is the first language of man, and we have, I think we've worked out 52 different first languages in the employees in the firm, the second largest human language is Mandarin. So if we've got 1400 employees, there's a sort of call it a thousand of them, their first language might be English, 150, their first language would be Mandarin. But we have about 600 people who code for a living in Python. And so really, Python is becoming more and more the lingua franca of our business. And I think, you know, for anybody who has an interest in, in these sorts of areas, it's a real necessity. The other is something I would always tell people is don't choose a job because you think it's the one where you can make the most money. Choose a job because it's the one where you're interested, where you get intellectually challenged by it, because actually predicting where, which will be the most profitable jobs in 10 years' time, I don't think I've ever seen anybody succeed at that. But you'll never succeed at something which you're doing just for the money, whereas if you're doing something with passion, that's always the thing you'll do best at.
0: Quite quite intriguing. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you
1: wish you knew
0: thirty plus years ago when you were first getting started?
1: I don't know. That's an interesting one in terms of yeah, that there are easy answers. Like I wish I knew that rates were gonna go down to nothing. But the but the reality is, I mean I've had a great run and I'm not sure I would change what happened in my 30 years of my career by knowing something different at the beginning. So what I would say is what I hope I did, which is try to make everything a learning experience. You know, when you talk to somebody, try and figure out not what's wrong with them, but what do they know that you don't know when you see a problem, try and figure out what you could learn from it. And then, you know, over the long run, you'll do really, really well out of that.
0: Thanks, Luke, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Luke Ellis, CEO of The Man Group, the world's largest publicly traded hedge fund. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see all of our previous 300 conversations over the past, is it six years, seven years? I've lost count. Uh, You can find our previous broadcasts at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com opinion. You can sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Marufel is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.